Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. Hallelujah. You can be seated, church. Love him. Thank you, Muso Singers. You guys are amazing, as are all our volunteers in the church. You know, church, the whole thing, the whole church runs because they're volunteers. If there were no volunteers, most of you wouldn't turn up because no one would open the doors, no one would turn the air conditioning on. Uh, and so all our volunteers are integral to the life of the church. Uh, also, uh, with our children's program, it's on right now. It, what a privilege it is to have our, our children being taught in a level or an age aspect that's relative to them in a way they can understand. Um, on that note, we probably do need, in fact, we do need at least five more adults to uh, help out uh, in our children program. And you'd be only on once a month. So once a month, you'd come for an extra service. Serve one, sit one. Um, if you've got children uh, in the children's program, maybe that would be a good thing, as long as you don't have infants or you already volunteer on a Sunday as well. But uh, I would really encourage you, get involved. It's part of the body of Christ. We serve one another. And the Bible's very clear that we should serve one another. So we're asking for you to turn up uh, just for one Sunday a month to do, do a serve service and then come and sit in the next one or sit in the service then go and serve. And uh, that would be a real privilege uh, for you to actually serve and honour the Lord in that, but be involved and help make the rostering so much easier for those who are over there. Some of them, most of them only serve once a month, but there are numbers who serve twice, three, four, five times a month. It would make it share the load much better if we all carried it. So come volunteer with that. That'd be good. Just let us know at the information desk in the foyer. I want to do part C of my connections, which is a part of a series as well. So this is the third of the series. And, uh, and this part C is on connecting to ourselves again. So we touched on this as the second part of last week's service. And there was no way I could cover the importance of knowing how to connect with ourselves. Uh, how we actually see ourselves, what, what our internal picture of who we are is. And it's really important that we do that in a healthy, in a balanced way, because how you see yourself determines every aspect of your outward actions in life. Let me read you again. We read this verse previously, but let me read it. 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 15, it says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And verse 21, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 25, but that the members should have the same care for one another. For if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So, so here's the picture is that we, we all need each other and we all need each other, right? We are needed and we need. And that's the whole point of community. It means to commune in unity, community. And as one people under, under the Lord, then we serve one another, i.e. helping out the hosting, the music, or the, t- the children's ministry, volunteering, whatever. And what Paul was dealing with is a church where there were two groups of people that had problems in this church. Now, I'm not sure how big the middle group was that were reasonably well-balanced and adjusted, but weren't perfect, but were reasonably well-balanced. 
Uh, we have a group at this end saying, well, I'm so cool that I don't need any of you. The, the world revolves around me and I'm important. And he identifies the eye and the head saying, well, we don't need the feed or whatever. You know, it's just me and Jesus and I'm okay. And, and, and the other one is, uh, is saying, well, if I'm not one of those, then I'm not needed or not wanted. And Paul's addressing both those extremes as, as wrong, as not healthy for the body of Christ, but also not healthy for the people who hold those views. See, how you relate to yourself is integral to how you relate to others, how you relate to God and how you live generally overall. Now, it's, we see this right through Scripture, how people relate to themselves. In Numbers 13, we, we find Israel has, has left Egypt. They're getting ready after wandering. They're getting ready at their first chance to enter the promised land. And, and Moses gets 12 spies to go in and check the land out and come back and bring a report. And that's wonderful if you read it. He's not asking for an opinion He's asking for a report. And so what happens is 10, 10 spies come back with a report and an opinion and two come back with a report who then after there's a bit of attention, give an opinion. So let, let me read what these people, these 10 spies said. There, when we went in, there we saw the giants. The sons of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And now an opinion, that, that is another opinion. And so we were in their sight. So here, firstly, they have an opinion of themselves and they have an opinion about what they think the other people think. Now, if you fast forward to the second time they come in and you come to Jericho, Rahab tells the two spies at this point of time, another journey, another generation, that everyone's hearts in this land that they were supposed to go in, their hearts were melting with fear. In other words, the giants supposedly, the sons of Anak from the giants supposedly, we would assume and, and conclude that they were actually terrified because they'd heard of what God had done with the Israelites when he delivered them from Egypt and on their journey. They did not think in their hearts that the Israelites were grasshoppers, but the Israelites did. And so they acted like it. What they thought of themselves, oh, we're not part of the body. We don't do anything super spiritual. We're not up there singing. No, 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 no. Don't get a wrong picture of yourself. Verse 30, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. What a great challenge. Some people are gonna get this. Oh, we're useless, we're wicked, we're tiny. Church, the church is not small. Around the world, millions of people are being saved every year and coming to Christ. We don't have to step back and say, well, we're the minority. Look, firstly, in Australia, over 50% of our nation believe in God in some way. So we're not a minority. Let's not think, well, we're the little ones. Let's be courageous to speak up as part of the body of Christ. People with a God view on life, a view that's gonna help everybody. We have our Western world because in some measure, not a perfect measure, but in some measure, the heartbeat of Christ came into our world. 
You go other places where that isn't there and it's, it's, such, it's so different. I was talking to someone this morning about the blessing of living in this, this nation with our freedoms and liberties. And, and we get that from our foundation, our Judeo-Christian foundation, that viewpoint. The view of ourselves impacts our whole worldview. And the Israelites, they failed to take that opportunity. And ultimately, it would be their children who would enter the land and not them because of their view of themselves. See, God's desire is to bring us to wholeness. So we see ourselves properly. We can relate to Him properly. We can relate to ourselves, and we can relate to others in the healthiest way. If we're proud or self-demeaning and self-hating, then most likely that's how we're going to treat other people. How you view yourself reflects. In Galatians 5, Paul shares to us an attitude of life, an action. He says, you brethren, you've been called to liberty. In other words, don't see yourself as a prisoner. Don't see yourself as a victim. Only don't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or sin. But through love, serve one another. All the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You do well. If you show partiality, you commit sin. They're great Scriptures, but if you take them just without a context, the truth is every one of us has a tendency and will usually in some measure love others as we love ourselves. So if you hate yourself, you're not going to like people. You're going to hate people. If you demean yourself, you're going to demean others. You know, if, if you do something for someone with the wrong heart because your heart is already wrong to yourself, you're going to pass that on to your way, the way you treat others, the way you act toward others. So we've got to ask yourself, what, what, what did Paul or James really mean in the context of love your neighbour as yourself? Because that's truthfully not exactly by itself. Because if I hate me and I hate you, I've loved you the way I love me. You think that's what is their meaning? No. In John 13, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give unto you. John 13, verse 34, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all the world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that love one another as I have loved you goes right across this to love others as you love yourself. You have to learn, we have to learn to love ourselves the way Christ loves us so that when we can, then we can love others like Christ loves us and love them in a way that would bring honour and actually fulfil the royal law. So in the context, Jesus himself is saying, love yourself the way I love you. Listen, love yourself the way Jesus loves you. Now, for many of us, that means we have to adjust our view of God's love toward us so we can learn to love ourselves properly. Well, the best way I know to do this is to look at how Jesus expressed his love toward people in the Bible. Because if I can see the example of Jesus' love toward people, I can see examples of his love toward me. And that's really important. And so I want to take some time. 
I want us to grab a hold of the Word. And as we journey, take away. Don't just leave. That was a great message, Pastor. If you don't put it into your life, what I've done is pointless and useless for you. It's about meditating upon. We've talked about this. Contemplate. What does it mean? Selah in the Psalms. Think about the thought that we've been left with and then put them in life and get a revelation of the love of God towards you. And then you can love yourself in a right manner. So last week we looked at the prodigal son and the father's love toward him. And today I want to I major on two, but a number of other examples of Jesus' love. Those who know the Bible will, 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 will get these quickly. If not, if you don't know the Bible that well, ask somebody. You, you look it up. You can find them really easily in the Gospels and, and Acts. And normally the Gospels. This is, um, there were 10 lepers that came across Jesus and, uh, and they wanted Jesus to heal them, set them free. And, and Jesus, think about this, he knows what's going to happen. One, he knows they're going to be healed. Two, he knows only one of them is going to come back and say thank you. Only one person is going to show any kind of appreciation for the love and the grace and the kindness expressed toward them. And Jesus still heals 10. Listen, Jesus heals the unthankful as well as the thankful. How do we go when people take advantage of us? What is our response to them? Because in this one, Jesus heals all 10. Yes, he asked the question and the guy who came back to say thank you was actually, the Bible says, made whole. Not just healed, but made whole. But the love of God expressed in Jesus was to these. Many of us would have known about this. Jesus raises the young man, the widow of Nain's son, raises him from the dead. Everyone's rejoicing. We don't know if that young man was a good person. We don't know if the mother was a good person. All we know is Jesus expressed his love to a broken situation. It doesn't give us any context other than he's dead, they're having a funeral. That's all we get. So people want to read all sorts of things. No, 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 we're not told. We're not told. All we know in that example is Jesus is expressing the love of God to humanity. I love that. You know, we... we, yeah, we get this, this wonderful thing. And, and when you look through the Bible, there, there, there's a couple of, I want to look at the woman with the issue of blood a little bit. She, she presses through the crowd, breaks all the religious rules. Technically under Jewish law, she is unclean. She shouldn't be touching people because she's making everyone she touches as she presses through the cloud religiously unclean. She's offending people. Whoever has people that offend them. Whoever has people that come to church offend them. She's pressing through the crowd of God's people, the Jews, and making them unclean because she smells, maybe, of blood. I don't know. She's unclean and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus, she gets healed by faith. Another expression of love of God. Even God didn't have to act on that. Just someone pressing in receives the love of God. See, Jesus' miracles were either in response to someone's faith or just an expression of the love of God. It's as simple as that. You look at all the miracles that either someone had faith or just the love of God. So I want to look at two examples. And I've touched these before, but I want to just... Look at it differently. In John 8, 
we have the woman caught in adultery. And let's set the scene. The religious leaders are looking, looking to trap Jesus. Do you know why they're trying to trap him? Because he's kind and good. He's, I've, heard, I've heard preachers who've been criticized for being too kind and too gracious. Well, I'm going to cheer for them. Are they right? I don't know. They're just kind and gracious. And here's these religious people that try to trap Jesus because of his acts of love. Because that's not what they're like. Now, to catch someone committing adultery in the daytime, that, that sounds a bit suspicious to me. And, and where's the man? We all ask that question. Uh, maybe they were paying him so they could catch them in the act. And you know, maybe they're paying so, look, we're not going to catch you. We just want her and we want to take her to Jesus. Why do they want to do that? They want to trap Jesus. They, they want to trap him by his kindness. And so they're setting up this situation and they drag her before Jesus' feet. They throw her down. Wow. I don't know how you feel. I don't know what you think about that situation. But I'm thinking, wow. Here's this woman. What's she thinking? Right now, what is she thinking? You know, she... You need to see, she is not thinking repentance for her actions. She is thinking consequences for her actions. Right now, she's on the ground, probably cowering down, probably got her hands over her head, knowing that what's going to happen. She's grown up in this culture. She knows the consequences for the life she's been living. She's not sorry for acting. She's sorry she's caught. And there's no evidence in this account that she is repenting or sorry for the life she's living. She's just sorry she's caught. You know, we, we want to read all sorts of things in this and make a judgment, but maybe, maybe her life has been a life of abuse in the past and, and having someone physically intimate with her gives her some sense of being loved. And there's a longing deep in her heart to be loved. Maybe, maybe she's in a situation where she's trapped into this lifestyle. Maybe she's the only way she can make money to feed her kids. or you know, Who knows? So let's not judge her too harshly. Oh, she's this. Well, how did she get there? I mean, it's not right, but let's, let's stop and, 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 and th- hang on. How did this happen? What is she doing? She's not, she may just be trapped in this situation. She's in a world where there's no pension. She's got to do something to make a living. And maybe this is the only way she can do it. And her only fear right now is the consequence of her action because she's been caught. She's not repentant. Nothing says that. Nothing in Scripture shows she's asking for forgiveness. She's just cowering on the ground in front of Jesus. Waiting, waiting there for the pain of judgment to come. The religious leaders think they've got Jesus now. You know, we got him. If he lets her off, he breaks the law and he's no prophet. He loses his credibility. But if he condemns her, then they've manipulated him into their world and he's no better and no kinder than they are. We spoke about this in the past, but Jesus deals with this situation with amazing wisdom. Firstly, he challenges the religious leaders about their level of holiness. 
And the Holy Spirit brings conviction so powerfully on each of them that they leave from the eldest to the youngest, the one who's supposed to be most holy. And they leave till none remain. Now the woman has no idea what's happening. She's on the ground waiting for that first stone to hit her. I mean, Jesus has said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. She hears this. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think she's thinking Jesus is going to solve the situation. She's waiting for that first stone, waiting for the impact of that stone to hit her on the back or the side of the head or somewhere. And then Jesus asked her a question. And I just wonder what the tenor of his voice was. Woman, she sort of looks up a little. Where are your accusers? There's none. Where, who's accused? There's no one. No one, Lord, she says. She still hasn't repented. She hasn't done anything except answer a question that Jesus asks. Woman, where are your accusers? And then Jesus answers her in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't this, this is an amazing example. First thing Jesus does is deals with the accuser. Or accusers. He deals with the accuser or accusers. Secondly, he asked her to look around. Look around and see if there are any who have the right to accuse you. And identify for yourself that there are no accusers. I wonder how many Christians think there's all these accusations. No, 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 no. Look around. There is no condemnation, the Bible says in Romans 8, to them that are in Christ Jesus. There is no one who condemns me. Now, people might, but people with a right to condemn, there is no one. And her view of herself changes from a condemned person to one who's not condemned. And then he makes known to her that he does not condemn her either. See, here's the reality. In John 3, Jesus says this, he who believes in him who's not condemned is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed. People without Christ in a, live in a world where they're already feeling condemned. They don't need Christians condemning them anymore than how bad they already feel deep within when they have those moments of solitude and quiet where they actually have to face themselves. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news and more condemnation is not good news. The good news is that in Christ, condemnation is dealt with. The accuser or accusers have no merit in God's eyes and should have none in ours either. As Christians, we need to live in Christ, one with Him, like Him. And the very fact that Jesus told her firstly that He did not condemn her, removed all condemnation. 
You know, that just that decision it empowers her. You're not a condemned person. You are now empowered to go and sin no more. Empowered by God, empowered by no condemnation. And you know, here's the kicker. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us she actually did change her life or not. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us she changed her life. All we know is that the love of God was expressed toward a woman who wasn't repentant that we know of. And He did not condemn her, but released her from condemnation, which empowered her, gave her an opportunity without judgment or condemnation to start a new life. Sadly, that hasn't always happened by the church. In John 5, Jesus heals a man and and there's no evidence that he repented either. It says in John 5, 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. There is no evidence, just the love of God towards sinners who aren't even repentant, church. They're people who haven't even said, God, I'm sorry for living like... They're just people who are hurt and broken. People who are looking for love in all the wrong places. And there's no condemnation. Just the mercy, kindness and love of God. And after they've received that love, He says, go and sin no more. He says, look, you're better than that. Go and live a better life. Live a better life. You've been set free. Live a better life. And there is a bit of an implication in this second account in John 5, 14, lest the worst thing come upon you. You know, sin always takes us worse. Sin always makes it worse and worse over time. There may be some joys and pleasures, but in the long run, it always gets worse. It's not like Jesus is bringing a curse on her. He's just telling a reality. I'm giving you a fresh start. Don't mess up. Don't mess up. And then Jesus defends these people against religious leaders. The second example is a woman in Luke 7 who anoints Jesus' feet. Washes them, anoints Jesus, but washes His feet with the tears. Let me read it to you quickly. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, talking to Jesus. And Jesus went with him to his house and sat down to eat. Now what would happen is, He's a leader. His house would be pretty much courtyard open. People would come and listen as Jesus would sit down and, and they would discourse. He would, he would share and teach and, and as they prepared the meal. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, put an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at His feet behind Him weeping. The implication is she was probably lying down sideways chatting feet down here she began to wash his feet with the tears and wipe them with her hair of her head she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he spoke to himself he spoke to himself this man if he were a prophet he would know what manner of woman this is who's touching him for she's a sinner sounds merciful and gracious doesn't it I wonder what moved this woman to such actions 
I can only conclude that Jesus was doing what Jesus was doing, what He was called to do and anointed. He says in Luke 4, 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus is probably sharing this. Maybe she's heard it before and she's hearing it again. I don't know. But she's, she's, she's responding to this message. But you know, Simon wasn't hearing that message. Didn't hear the same message she heard. See, Simon's view of himself deafened him and blinded him to the good news of the Gospel. His self-righteousness meant the message was not for him. He considered himself good. Jesus Himself said, I've come to save sinners, not the righteous or self-righteous would be better of you. Jesus answered Simon in the house said, Simon, I have something to say to you. After He said to Himself, you know, who is this woman, etc. A certain creditor owed two debtors, had two debtors. One owed 500, another owed 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, freely gave them both, forgave them both. Tell me, which of them will love Him more? Simon answers and said, I suppose the one whom He forgave more and he said to him, you've rightly judged. So firstly, he says, hey, Simon, you made a good choice. You're right. Then he turned to the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? What a silly question, but Jesus knows. So he asked the question anyway, because Simon has seen her. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, custom. She's washed my feet with her tears and wiped with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. Custom, greet people with a kiss. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was customary, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. So Simon did nothing to honour or respect a guest in his house who was a rabbi. Did nothing to honour a guest in his house. And Jesus, this woman's doing everything you should have done. Therefore I say to you, now he's talking to Simon, her sins which are many. I know what kind of woman she is. Don't you get critical and judge her. This woman whose sins are many are forgiven. Oh, hang on, hang on. Who can forgive sins but God? Simon is now ticked. And so are probably all his guests who are religious people too. And then Jesus brings back the parable that He's just dealt with them. For she loved much. Whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Wow. So Jesus puts Simon in the parable. He says, you're the guy who owed 50 in your own mind and your love of and for God is little. But her love is great. Her love for God exceeds yours by a long way. And her sins are forgiven. And and he he, he basically gets in Simon's face, calls him a religious bigot, one who really doesn't love God properly. And this sinner woman loves God better than you. That would have upset Simon. And then Jesus turns to her because he wants her to know. She's heard it secondhand, but he looks at her and goes, Your sins are forgiven. He wants her 
to get a different view of herself firsthand. You're not a condemned person, you're a forgiven person. Then He tells her to go in peace. So we know Jesus knew what kind of woman she was. And He expressed amazing grace, mercy and love. He identified religious people who were judgmental and critical with those who love little. I don't know, you can look into it yourself, but I think the perfume she poured out, there's another passage where a lady does the same thing, alabaster box and all, worth about $70,000. I'm not sure if this one was worth that or not. How did she get that? Probably from the way she was living. She poured out the stuff that she'd bought with the money she'd earned through her conduct on Jesus' feet. She poured out her past life as a sacrifice to the King as an act of worship. Romans tells me that. It says, Christians, our life of living sacrifice is our spiritual act of worship. Your sins are forgiven. Let me wrap this up a little. In some accounts, there is no evidence of the people repenting at all but God's love is still manifest toward them. God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness. But at times He identifies that now now you've been forgiven, you you need to live a better life or else it could get worse because sin always makes it worse. But to those who are openly and actively repentant, the prodigal son, nothing about him changing his life, but we know he did. This woman, she's changing her life. She doesn't need to be told, go and sin no more. She's poured out her whole life, all her earnings, her profit, her livelihood is poured out on Jesus' feet. So here's two points. God is always gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, relenting from doing harm. Nowhere in Jesus' life do we find Him condemning people who know they're not good. He challenges religious people. And whether people are repentant or not, God is still good. God is still kind. God is still loving. Secondly, people already feel condemned. They don't need us, the church, to be religious and condemn them. They need us to help remove the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that would empower them to change their life. We all battle with self-condemnation, even Christians at times, we battle with it. But we captivate that into the knowledge that we are loved of God, that we are forgiven. And being forgiven, there is no condemnation. So here's my final thoughts. If Jesus demonstrated that the only way people change the view of themselves to His view is that they would be loved unconditionally. Listen, if the only way people change their view of themselves to the right view is they need to be loved unconditionally, then maybe, maybe Christians, we need to love others unconditionally and we need to learn to love ourselves unconditionally. And we mess up, just say, God, I'm sorry and move on. We've got to love ourselves and love others. 
And if you're listening today, whether here or online, whether Christian or not, God loves you. The same way Jesus showed through His whole life. And my prayer is that you see yourself through God's eyes and you start to get a God view of yourself, which is a right view. My prayer is that that you would get a hold of that. And I'm sorry if we, the church, have not always shown you this kind of love. I'm sorry if I've not always expressed the God kind of love to you properly. Many of us still battle with loving ourselves properly. And so we struggle with loving others properly as well. And I ask you, please don't judge the church. Please don't judge the church by our actions because we have failings and weaknesses. He's gracious and merciful and full of loving kindness. Always has been and always will be. And His greatest desire is that everyone would come to repentance and experience His love. But only you can do that. God has done everything He can possibly do without violating our free will. To leave it to one simple decision that we make. God, I'm sorry for living without You. I repent. I ask You into my life. And Christians, many of us still battle with loving ourselves. God, help me see. Just like those who are coming to Christ, help us see and experience God's love. His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness and His re- through our repentance. You won't be perfect when you come to Christ. God will see you that way though. None of us are perfect. But we will be forgiven. We will be accepted. We can stand and learn to realise there is no condemnation. And in that love, we can start to live right. If you want to commit to life to Christ today, I want to ask you, would you pray with me? Christians, I'd love you to join in this and in many ways for you to say, God, no condemnation to me. Would you pray with me now? Just follow me. Heavenly Father, I come to you today. Help me know your love in every measure. Help me to become gracious, merciful, kind and loving. I receive your love for me. I repent of my past and I receive Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. Amen. Father, I pray for this church and this family, those watching online and those who this morning may have committed their life to Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. He doesn't condemn you and I choose not to. I'll, ba- I'll always battle with that journey as will many Christians, but we choose no condemnation. And whether you come to Christ or not, there will be no condemnation from us. Our hope will be that you will know His love and that you and we could see ourselves through His eyes and then love one another as Christ has loved us in Jesus' name.